0: The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse.
1: You have received the Holy Spirit to bring sight to your eyes, and you have perceived Jesus Christ as your light and your salvation. But some of you, like Peter, have followed afar off. You have been born of the Holy Spirit, but you have grieved the Holy Spirit. Instead of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit... You have allowed your mind to be set on the things of the flesh and you have thereby set up a condition in your life which is one of hostility enmity to the surgical work which the lord must do in all that are his through christ
0: The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Flesh in the Believer. You may earnestly desire to soar through the air like an eagle, but no matter how hard you flap your arms, you will never get off the ground. You are physically unable to fly without some sort of flying apparatus. Likewise, human beings are spiritually incapable of coming to Christ for salvation without God performing a supernatural work of saving grace in them. Has God's grace overcome your natural spiritual hostility against Him? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Romans chapter 8 and verses 7 and 8. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Flesh. In the believer.
1: Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We worship thee because there is none like unto thee, the God of all perfection and worthy of all praise. Bless thy truth to us in this hour, that we may be drawn to thee, and that thine holiness may become more and more our whole way of life. Accept our praise and grant our prayer. In the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our study takes us today to Romans 8, 7 and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject unto the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, first of all, we must establish a better translation for this passage. Almost all the translations eliminate the word carnal and replace it by the word flesh. The mind of the flesh, says the 1901 version, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, the revised standard says. Vercoy says worldly mindedness is hostile to God. Weymouth translates it, thoughts shaped by the lower nature mean a state of enmity to God it does not submit to god's law says the revised it neither can nor will follow his laws for living says phillips goodspeed translated it refuses to obey god's law indeed it cannot obey it and all the translations agree in stating simply that they that are in the flesh cannot please god i will establish a translation from a combination of all these and we will put it because the mind that is set on the flesh is at enmity to God. It will not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot thus be subject. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, if this passage, as practically all of the commentators hold, is a part of a contrast between the unregenerate and the regenerate, then the statement means that the mind of the unsaved man is set on the flesh and the things of the flesh, and that it is, therefore, in a state of hostility to God. Though I shall in a moment make an application of this text to the carnal believer, it should be seen at once that the statement is also true of the unsaved man, paralleling many other statements of the scripture and other statements in the earlier chapters of this epistle, which describe the state of the man who is out of Christ. The most important implication of the statement when seen in that light is that it is totally impossible For the saved man to reach the mind of the lost man with any presentation of the gospel. The mind of the unsaved man will not submit to the law of God. And much more important, it cannot thus be subject. Now there are those who reject this truth because they cling so tenaciously to the error that man is capable of doing something for himself. And of having some part in the inception of his own salvation. If one dares to confront them with this text, that the unsaved man has a mind that is in a state of hostility to God, and that his mind neither will nor can submit to God, they will ignorantly babble that whosoever will certainly must mean that whosoever will may come. I was once greatly tempted to impatience with such people until I realized that their attitude was itself an illustration of the truth of our text in its application to the life of Christians. Applied to the unsaved, our text sets forth that the state of the mind of the lost man is one that is totally alienated from the life of God. If you go and preach whosoever will to the unsaved masses, and if God does not intervene to do his work of grace, not one human being will will to come to God. I repeat that, not one human being will, will to come to God. If God had sent masses of angels to preach the gospel to the lost race and had not applied any supernatural power within the individual, not one member of the human race would ever have accepted Christ as Savior. The innate hostility of the mind of man to the laws of God would and does make any such acceptance impossible. Now, in this fact, lies the reason why God had to send John the Baptist ahead of Christ. For Christ was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came as the light, and his coming shed a brilliant light over every son of Adam in this world. And not one human being looked up as the light came upon him. The only reaction to the coming of Christ into this world was similar to that which takes place in crawly, slimy things when a stone is turned over and the light shines down upon creatures of darkness. It was for this reason that God sent John the Baptist to bear witness to the light. The light is on, the light is on, cried John the Baptist. And the blind sons of Adam turned the empty sockets of their sightless faces toward the messenger of God and said vacuously, What is light? What is light? Oh, in order to see, it takes more than light. It is necessary to have sight if we are to behold the things of God. And sight comes only with the supernatural quickening with which God enters the hearts of men. The light is there, revealing our true natures. And with the coming of sight, we are able to receive that light. First, we see men walking as trees, And with the further application of the Word of God, we are able to discern spiritual things in the light of the Spirit. And, thank God, the day shall come when in His light we shall see light, and we shall know even as we are known, for we shall see Him as He is. Now, if this truth is understood, it can be realized why there is so little of what is called apologetics in my studies. An intellectual argument prepared according to the rules of human logic with the thought of convincing an unsaved man that his position is untenable has never brought one soul to Christ since the beginning of human thought. All of the volumes which have been written to prove the existence of God have never brought one man to believe in God. All of the volumes which have been written to prove that the Bible is the word of God have never brought one soul believe in the divine revelation. All of the volumes which have ever been written to show the historicity of Christ and of his life after death through the bodily resurrection have never brought one soul to know the power of that resurrection. It makes no difference what men wish to say. Ontology, teleology, natural theology, and the other branches of apologetic thought can never bring one soul to Christ. Because, our text says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, is at enmity with God. It will not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot thus be subject. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, some may wonder then if the lives of the great apologetic thinkers have been wasted. The answer is that they have not been wasted. For God raises such men and gives them great intelligence and patience and zeal to do their work, not in order to save men, but to stand as monuments of condemnation to those who will not come to the light. And their works are indeed strengthening to the faith and helpful to the growth of those who are quickened by God. Keeping to the task that the Lord has given me to do, I teach the word to those who have been made alive, in order that they may grow in Christ and proclaim the gospel in passing, doing the work of an evangelist and making full proof of my ministry. I speak my words into the vacuum of the mind of the flesh and trust in the Lord to do with it as he pleases. When I address the word of God to those who are saved, I know that the Holy Spirit who is in me to send forth the divine word is also within my hearers to receive it and cause it to take root and grow. Now I wish to turn from this application where most of the commentators are in accordance, and I wish to apply my text in what I believe is its primary purpose. I wish to address this text to those who have been born again. You have received the Holy Spirit to bring sight to your eyes, and you have perceived Jesus Christ as your light and your salvation. But some of you, like Peter, have followed afar off. You have been born of the Holy Spirit, but you have grieved the Holy Spirit. Instead of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, you have allowed your mind to be set on the things of the flesh. And you have thereby set up a condition in your life, which is one of hostility, enmity, to the surgical work, which the Lord must do in all that are his through Christ. There is an illustration that I would like to use if I were not afraid that some would seize upon it, and push it further than I wish it to go. I would say that there come times in the lives of some true believers in Christ when the flesh rises like a cataract upon the eyes. Now I'm afraid to use the illustration lest someone be tempted to say that the cataract can go on to destroy sight and return one to a state of total blindness. But this would not be true in the spiritual application. Sin does arise in the life of the believer and sin always has a blinding effect. The cataract does impede the fullness of sight and brings an individual whose eyes have been touched into a filmy world where he gropes to find his way and where all sharp distinctions are washed out. Sin has the same effect in the life of a believer. Sin destroys the great quality of spiritual discernment, Several years ago, I talked with one of the outstanding devotional leaders of the past generation. We came to the agreement that spiritual discernment was the rarest of all the gifts of the spirit. Today, I believe I know why the gift of discernment is so rare. Discernment is the ability to see the sharp distinctions of spiritual thought. Discernment is the gift which enables one to see all of the various shades of meaning in a spiritual problem. Now the cataract of sin brings dullness of vision. With that dullness of vision, the edges of spiritual thinking grow fuzzy, and the shades which give true meaning are seen in a color blindness, which can destroy the direction of life. Green appears red, and red appears green, so that the whole stop-and-go pattern of life is altered and the believer moves when he should be still and he's anchored when he should be driven before the wind of the spirit. Now, if we take our illustration thus far, it can do no harm. We must not think, however, that there is a possibility that the man who has once been given true sight should lose that sight. Vision can be restored in an instant when the believer is willing to apply the eye salve of grace. Rainsford applies our text to unbelievers but I believe that I can take his own comment and apply it to believers who are out of the will of God. The mind is the noblest part of man and if the mind is an enmity then all the rest follows. It is not merely said that the carnal mind is an enemy for enemies may be reconciled but that it is enmity and enmity cannot be reconciled. Enmity must be slain. And it has been slain at the cross of Christ and in all those who have really received the Lord Jesus Christ. For we read in Ephesians, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Oh, what a blessed gospel this is for faith to rejoice in. I am conscious of much that is sinful and corrupt in my poor fallen nature. But by the cross of Christ, the enmity has been slain. Natural men do not suspect this enmity. But alas, the God they profess to acknowledge is a God of their own imagination. The God of the Bible is as different a being from the God the natural man dreams of as can possibly be conceived. The God of the Bible is holy and true. His word endureth forever, and his people hide it in their hearts that they may not sin against him. The child of God knows that his best services have need of his father's patience and pity, and like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Oh, do we not know from sad experience that it is possible for us to fall back under the sway of that which has been abolished? and to be controlled by the spasmodic motions of that which has been slain. God does not want us to live thus in hours that are tedious and tasteless. The God of the Bible is a just God. He cannot clear the guilty. He is of purer eyes than to look upon iniquity. He is a God who cannot have fellowship with men unless his spirit is dwelling in them and unless they are yielded to him. He claims our hearts. He reads our thoughts. We are not our own. We are his purchased portion, and he will have our time and our affections consecrated to himself. The natural man cannot suffer this heavenly fellowship. And the child of God who has once known it and who has stepped out of the will of God to walk after the flesh immediately loses the fellowship, though not the relationship, and his life becomes a dead thing. His mind set on the flesh, none of his thoughts or actions pleasing unto God. There is a striking analogy between God's way in nature and in grace. See that green tree. The dew falls upon it, calling out its beauty. How fresh it looks. The sunlight sparkles on its leaves and its blossoms burst forth. The bountiful seasons pass over it and the fruit appears. See that other dead tree. The dew that falls upon it only rots it all the more quickly. And the light and heat serve but to hasten its corruption. And see a third tree, a green tree that is covered over with aphids. The dew falls upon it but cannot get to it to do its work. And the tree is alive but fruitless. Now see a man alive in Christ Jesus. How sweetly the word of God sounds in his ears. How precious the very name of the Redeemer is to him. While perhaps close beside him in the next seat, hearing the same truth, favored by the same ministry, what a contrast may be seen. Eyes closed, ears stopped, instead of bringing forth fruit, heart hardened against a dying Savior's love. And the simple sad reason given is, it is not subject to the law of God. And see a man who has been made alive in Christ Jesus, but who's gotten out of the will of God. He is in Christ, but he's not abiding in Christ. He is not cast forth as a son, but he is cast forth as a branch. None of his actions can please God. Now this does not mean that God does not love him, for God does love him and is watching over him in every way, seeking to bring him back to the place of full fellowship. Many years ago when our children were small, we went out one evening and left our children under the care of a babysitter. She was a student at one of the Bible schools and should have known much better than to do the things she did. When we returned about midnight, she was greatly concerned with the fact that the oldest child had not gone to sleep but had been crying for about four hours. Nothing that the babysitter had said would in any wise comfort her. I went to the child's room and found her flushed and sobbing, her little face red with long weeping. When I picked her up, she threw her arms around my neck and sobbed, ''Daddy, say it isn't true. Say it isn't true. You do love me.'' I replied that, ''Of course I loved her.'' And the child then said, ''She said that if I was bad, you wouldn't love me. And I know that I've been bad, so maybe you do not love me.'' I pressed her to me and I said, ''My dear child, I always love you. When you are good, I love you with a love that makes me glad. And when you are bad, I love you with a love that makes me sad. But I love you, good or bad. I am always your daddy. The child was already more calm. And the dawn of a smile came to her face. I began to cover her gently with kisses. And then I told her that a good daddy had to be like the Lord was with him. And with all of us. Who have become his children she smiled and was soon asleep now when we have passed out of death and into life the lord loves us he loves us with an eternal love that is dependent upon his own nature and being we are in christ and the father is well pleased with the lord jesus and we being in him are well pleasing to him in fact having been justified by faith we are found to be in christ And therefore, it is totally impossible that we should not be pleasing unto the Father, for we have been made accepted in the Beloved. Now, someone may wonder if I'm not contradicting myself. But look closely, and you'll see that I'm not. Nor is this chapter contradicting itself or any other part of the Word of God. Oh, we must see that there's a great difference between a man being in the flesh and the flesh being in the man. I am not in the flesh, though the flesh is in me. Now, this is taught in Galatians where we read the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. The unsaved man is in the flesh, and they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. But can a man who has been made a new creation in Christ Jesus and who is not in the flesh, but in the spirit, Can such a man walk after the flesh? Can such a mind set his mind on the things of the flesh? Alas, the unhappy truth is that he can and that he does. Perhaps the first step in the process of true sanctification, biblical sanctification, is the recognition of this terrible fact. For when the facts are recognized, then the steps can be taken which will lead on to practical sanctification. Our justification is sure, certain, and eternal. Our positional sanctification is sure, certain, and eternal. But our practical sanctification is that with which the Spirit of God is now occupied. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. And he that hath begun a good work in you will keep on perfecting it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let no child of God allow his flesh to take any comfort in the situation that we have set forth. These facts are not given in order to aid, abet, or comfort the flesh, but in order that the Spirit may be roused within us and that we may learn to walk after the Spirit in the power of the Spirit, with our affection set on the things of the Spirit. God has purposed to form Christ in us, and he's working at that task and will continue working at it as long as we are here in this body. He will draw us with love if we will let him, but if not, He will chastise us and draw us with discipline. And we can thank him that the goal is sure and that the day shall come when his work in us will come to its close and we shall see Christ and be like him when we see him as he is. And our dear Heavenly Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall break down the hardness that is in the flesh of believers and that thou shall teach us all to return ever to the cross of Christ to deliver ourselves to thee for crucifixion death, that thy resurrection life may have its sway within us and that we may know what it is to reign in life by Christ. Lord our God, hear, we pray thee, and wilt thou give restlessness to any who have not been born again. To thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now until our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen.
0: Our justification and positional sanctification are sure, certain, and eternal. It is God's will that we grow in practical sanctification, and He is at work in you to develop true holiness in your life. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Flesh in the Believer. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at Alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Flesh in the Believer, or simply request message number R8-12. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled How God Saves Men. A Latin poet once said that there were as many opinions as there were men. You can find a wide variety of ideas about salvation even among Christians. This free booklet clears up the confusion by setting forth God's word about how he saves people. You will understand God's grace, love, and power in salvation as you read about God's part in salvation, faith, how God does not save men, and God's workmanship. Ask for your free copy of How God Saves Men when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at Alliancenet.org.